Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today's episode comes in two parts. We're speaking just before Joe Biden's inauguration to talk about what might come next in American politics. And then we're going to catch up briefly after he's spoken to see what it is he actually said. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. If you enjoy listening to Talking Politics, you'll definitely enjoy reading the LRB. That's why they publish a reading list of relevant writing from the archive to accompany every episode on lrb.co.uk and also why you, Talking Politics listeners, are invited to subscribe for just £1 an issue via the URL lrb.me talk. That's lrb.me talk. Talking Politics in partnership with the London Review of Books. Helen Thompson and Gary Gerstle are with me. Gary, you're in the United States, so it's early for you, right? It's sort of seven-ish, just gone seven. Seven-ish, yes. Yep. yep. So uh, Donald Trump's still president, I believe. Then does he still have the nuclear football, as far as you're aware? I believe he does. Uh, I think so did it have to go to air. Florida with him and then come back? Uh, I, actually, I don't know the answer to that question, but I imagine technically it, it does. I imagine it will go with him to Florida that will be his last flight on Air Force One. The plane will come back with the football, I think, and then it'll be put in Biden's possession. So we hope nothing happens between it arriving and it coming back. I'm with you on that. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about uh, what comes next. We've been talking enough about what's happened recently. So uh, one thing that we talked about a bit, and it's clearer now than it was in some ways, which is the potential for a split in the Republican Party. So Donald Trump is shortly no longer to be president, but he has a huge following still, and he has a lot of capacity still to cause trouble, not just for the opposition, but for his own party. And Mitch McConnell is now completely out, as it were, as not a never-Trumper, because he enabled Trump for many, many years, but he's now a not-Trumper. Gary, does that split have the potential genuinely to divide the Republican Party, even to the point, and we'll talk in a second about possible historical parallels, even to the point that it could split the party itself? Well, it is a very serious split. Those of us watching American politics have been wondering for years now when this kind of split would occur, because many in the Republican Party, including McConnell, have never liked Trump, and yet they have not been willing to break from him on any significant issue until now. So I think McConnell's coming out against Trump and saying he's open to a possible conviction for a Senate trial for impeachment is a very significant development. And there is now going to be a battle for the soul of the Republican Party, whether it leads to fragmentation and the actual collapse of the Republican Party and the emergence of a new configuration. I would say that is still unlikely because the record of starting new parties in America is so dismal. There's only been one successful political party launched in the last 170 years, and that's the Republican Party itself, which emerged in the 1850s. Numerous attempts, all of them failures. The attempts to do so can shake up American politics in profound ways, uh, but they rarely lead to the establishment of a new and successful political party. Helen, what do you think is the main fault line in the Republican movement, never mind the party at the moment? Because I mean, it's not as if McConnell has himself a popular following, I don't think, though, of course, he is 
that phrase that some people don't like us using, he is the Republican establishment. Where do you see the fault line? Well, I think in some ways it's become a, a three-way split. But as you say, with McConnell having moved effectively to the side of the, the never-Trumpers. But if we go back to the you know the beginning of all this, so when Trump declared himself for the Republican nomination, I think what you could see then was that he was positioning himself or trying to position himself then as the voice of, as he presented it, ordinary Republican voters against a, a party establishment that was disconnected from them on a, on a number of quite big issues, and one of which was the immigration issue, an issue that's that's obviously already coming back. And he was able, in good part, to win that nomination because he was able to say to enough of the Republican voters that he was taking what they thought more seriously than what the Republican members of Congress thought, and indeed what the the big corporate donors to the Republican Party thought. So from the point of view of the Republican Party establishment, to use that language, the, the Trump you know, candidature was like a disaster from the beginning because it was a repudiation of a whole way of doing things. It was a repudiation of the way in which they'd responded to their defeat in 2012 when Romney had lost, which was to say, look, we can win this if we get Hispanic voters on side. Now, obviously, the party from the establishment, the party establishment's point of view has been completely contaminated, not just by Trump having won the nomination and then won the election, by, but what's happened in the last few weeks. And it seems to me that some kind of split is now absolutely inevitable. And I think that we might interpret what McConnell's doing and his openness to impeaching Trump is to try to ensure as an absolute priority that Trump isn't able to run for office again, either to challenge for the Republican nomination next time round or to challenge the Republican Party by running as a third party candidate. And when you say it's three way, so there's the the core Trump support, there is the McConnell version of the establishment, is the implication, and I may have got this completely wrong, that there is also, as it were, those people within the Republican Party who want to hoover up Trump voters without Trump. Yeah, the, is, is I don't think McConnell's quite in that position and that was perhaps not the best way of framing that and obviously there's been a backlash against people like Ted Cruz as well anybody who was opposed to certifying the results of the electoral college and some of those people have found that um, people who were willing to donate quite a lot of money to them are, are no longer willing to do so but I think that there will be a fight within the Republican Party between those who want to hold on to Trump's policies and think it can be done without Trump so the repudiation of Trump the man without some of the policies, those who just want everything to do with Trump completely decontaminated out of the, the party and Trump himself. Now, I, I don't, I mean, who knows what goes on in Donald Trump's mind? It, might, it may be that he doesn't want to carry on in politics that he's, as a politician, that he's more interested now in a media platform than he is in politics. But clearly he still represents a threat to the Republican Party in one way or another, either from inside it or from outside it. And that is, is why I think that McConnell is willing to consider impeachment. Gary, if you if you think of the scenarios, and, and like Helen says, who knows what Trump himself actually wants to do. And I'm going to offer you the historical parallel in a moment. But those potential scenarios next time round, one of which is that Trump tries to regain the Republican Party nomination. The other of which is that he runs 
as a third party candidate, thereby splitting the anti-Democrat vote. Which one is worse for the Republicans? Well, that's a dilemma that McConnell is currently facing. (laughs) It's keeping him up at night. I think part of McConnell would prefer to have Trump out of the Republican Party and eligible for resuming leadership position in it again. On the other hand, if he is in effect expelled from the Republican Party and and leads a third party movement, history is not kind to those movements if McConnell is paying attention to history. The nearest parallel would be what happened in the early years of the 20th century when Theodore Roosevelt was elected in 1904 and decided not to run again in 1908. Still a young man, very popular, wanted to do other things, gave the presidency to his trusted lieutenant, William Howard Taft, who then, in Roosevelt's opinion, made a mess of things. Roosevelt decides to re-enter politics in 1912, and he mashed up the Republican Party. And the chief result of that was to create a path to the presidency for a Democrat uh, in the form of Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson won with 43% of the vote. If the Republican Party had been united, the Republicans would have won in 1912. Interesting parallel in 1992 as well, when Perot split the Republican Party from George H.W. Bush with his Reform Party, his third party candidacy. And once again, a Democrat came into office on the basis of gaining only a minority of the electorate. Clinton's share of the total vote, almost identical to Roosevelt's in 1908, I believe it was 42 or 43%. Uh, so if we look at the closest parallels, we see that the, the fragmentation of the Republican Party, the effort to mount a third party initiative has not ended well. And uh, thus, that's the dilemma that McConnell faces. But I think the fight now, I agree with Helen, the fight is unavoidable and inescapable. Chainsaws. Yeah, I mean, I think that the the 92 case is interesting because I would say that wasn't just about the divisions in the Republican Party. Clearly, that was part of it. And you could see the difficulty that George Bush Sr. was in from the New Hampshire primary and his performance against Pat Buchanan, who sort of was articulating a, a kind of Trumpist agenda before Trump. But I think it's reasonably clear that um, Ross Perot in that general election took votes away from the Democrats as well as from the Republicans. And obviously, in terms of his history and the history of the Reform Party, there is a connection with Trump because he was sort of involved in that in the in the early 2000s. So I think that that election is part of the longer history, if you like, of how we get to Trump in 2016. But I think one of the things we might draw out from the 1912 and parallel as Gary has drawn it is that although the split worked to the benefit of the Democrats, it, it did involve Theodore Roosevelt as a progressive party candidate ending in second place and the Republican candidate Taft um, you know, getting absolutely um, hammered. So from the, the point of view of McConnell and the Republican Party establishment, the idea of leaving Trump to run as a third party candidate is pretty problematic, I think, if we if the parallel stands. And I think in lots of ways it does. So on that question that what McConnell might try to do by convicting Trump in the Senate is to exclude him not just from running for the Republican nomination, but from running at all as a third party candidate. And my guess is, I mean, who knows, right, what 
bedrock Trump support there is out there when he's not a Republican, because obviously his approval ratings, his support, the people who voted for him in elections, a lot of people are not voting for Trump. They're voting for or approving of the Republican candidate. So my guess is it can't be much more than 25, 30%. It could be enormously disruptive. But if he is ruled out from running for election, he might retire to a media career. Or do you think there is any risk there at all that he tries to find other ways of doing politics? I mean, I don't want to sort of get back to that whole question about what threat this poses to democracy itself, although I am opening it up here. But are there risks that um, Trump excluded from running for office, even as a third party candidate, tries to push back against the political establishment in other extra democratic ways? I think he will. And that would actually probably be preferable to him than starting a third party in any case. One thing to realize about starting a third party is that it's, it is extraordinarily difficult work. And part of Trump does not like that extraordinarily difficult work. To be successful in American party politics, you need party organizations in every one of the 50 states. We think of the GOP as being a national organization, but in many respects, it's a state by state organization. The state organizations are largely independent. We saw that in Georgia, when, where Republican officials took a stance that was completely independent of the national GOP in Washington, D.C. And so to be successful as a third party candidate requires an extraordinary organization and an extraordinary amount of work at the grassroots. Trump has never uh, shown the capacity to do that kind of work on his own, the kind of grassroots organization and agitation, the kind of systematic organization, the attention to detail. Uh, and I think he would not be inclined to undertake that. And the kind of people he has around him, I'm not sure they could pull it off either. So the temptation to him is is going to be to find other ways to influence the political process from the outside not as a formal candidate, to find ways to convulse the political system to make the existing system ungovernable. And so I think we very much have to worry that that may be one of the options that he chooses for himself. Keep in mind, however, that Americans do not treat one-term presidents kindly. And that is what Trump now is, or he in a few hours will be a one-term president. They are regarded as losers. They are regarded as not successful. And most of the one-term presidents in American history have rapidly lost their influence and power. And one of the key things and elements to watch out for in the next few months is whether Trump follows a similar downward trajectory or if he's able to beat the odds, so to speak, and to become, he would become perhaps the first one-term president in American history to retain his power and influence after his loss. So Helen, if we then turn our focus onto what the Biden administration might do. So you said, and I think it is interesting, um, after all, if you go back to the beginning of the story, it was immigration that gave Trump his way in. And some of the earliest steps that, I mean, it's not the administration yet, it will be in a few hours, that Biden has made, or the people around him have made, is to bring immigration back front and center as an issue. And so there is a real question for Biden's people. What is the order of priorities for them now? Are they going to try and, as it were, pretend that the Trump era is over and get back to something like, to use that hideous word, normalcy, in which case, maybe this is an issue they just want to move on with as quickly as possible? Or should they be 
structuring their list of priorities in accordance with the thought that Trumpism is a real force out there and it needs to be handled carefully. Just to start with, what do you make of the fact that they brought immigration back as a central issue? It's very striking, um, both because of the fact that the origins of Trump's candidacy for the Republican nomination, I think, lie in that issue more than any other single issue, or at least the effectiveness of his candidacy. And he certainly used it to finish off, or it was part of how he finished off, you know, like Jeb Bush, who was supposed to be the, the lead runner for the nomination. But it's also striking because this is an issue with a history that goes way back um, before Trump and has caused both parties in different ways, including you know, the Democrats, so much difficulty. And the the attempts at you know, immigration reform that were made really from the, the middle of the 1980s onwards either haven't worked in terms of their stated aims or have produced um, stalemate. And if you go back to, I think it was 2013 and the the Gang of Eight, who a group of Republican and Democrat senators, one of whom was Marco Rubio, who um, Trump attacked a lot about this issue in contesting that Republican nomination. And they were essentially trying to find a, a trade-off that would pass through Congress where there will be a path to citizenship for unauthorised immigrants who've been in the United States for a long time in exchange for greater controls on the border um, with Mexico. And that failed. And as I say, it had consequences for the 2016 election, at least in terms of what's coming out about what Biden administration might have in mind. This isn't about having the corollary of tightening the border as well. So this will be trying to do something more radical than has hitherto been attempted. And those previous less radical efforts were not able to muster congressional majorities and produced within the Republican Party the Trump phenomenon, or at least a significant part of the Trump phenomenon. Gary, though, I mean, just to read the headline that I'm looking at now, and again, we, you know, we don't know, but the headline says, Biden set to propose eight-year path to citizenship for 11 million with no enhanced border security. That is a bold move. Uh, yes, it is. And I think it's probably a mistake to highlight it at this point. Certain things with regard to Trump's immigration policies have to be done and have to be done Immediately, one is the awful family separation policy that, uh, that is continuing to afflict families from Central America and kept in camps in the, in the Southwest, and hundreds of children still separated from their parents. I think the ban on immigrants from Muslim countries has to be lifted. But I think, given the the prominence of this immigration issue in American politics, given its divisiveness, I think it's not the best foot on which to lead. And I'm worried a little bit that Biden is and his advisors are remembering a time when the House was the obstructionist force in comprehensive immigration reform. And the Senate was where they were successful in a bipartisan effort pulling Republicans and Democrats together. But quite a number of the Republicans who came aboard comprehensive immigration reform in earlier Senates, like John McCain, Bob Corker of Tennessee, they are now gone. So it's not clear that there will be the same kind of bipartisanship. And you have other people like Josh Hawley in the Senate who are absolutely opposed to this. I think it's wiser for Biden uh, to paraphrase Carville, uh, Bill Clinton's advisor in the 1990s, who used to like to go around saying, uh, it's the economy, stupid, 
it's the economy stupid. Uh, I think now it's the pandemic stupid. Focus on the pandemic, focus on getting relief, focus on getting people vaccinated in a mass way. Declare emergency powers, accrue tremendous amount of power to the central government, which is there for the taking that Trump never wanted to take responsibility for. Demonstrate the competence of government in ways that easily moves across partisan lines. Biden has a great opportunity here to have a great success with vaccination, with economic relief, and then perhaps in June and July, an economic rebound, which is then going to give him credibility and the ability to do a lot more. So my advice to him, if you were listening to me, which of course he's not doing, is not to press so hard on a path to citizenship for 11 million right now. I do think one other element of the immigration package that should go forward is is the Dreamers Act. Those Hundreds of thousands, nearly a million children brought to here as as babies, as very young children really have grown up in the United States, create a path to citizenship for them. I mean, that is something that uh, ought to happen and be secured through legislation, not through executive action. So that I support. But the 11 million path to citizenship, wait six months to do that and see what the circumstances of the political playing field look like. Helen, how would you rank the order of priorities for the Biden administration? What would you do first if you were... President of the United States, I wish you were. I mean, I don't think I can sort of qualify to... <laughs> can you imagine think, being President of the United States? <laughs> ...to think about that question. Um, the two things that we've been talking about, like, connect together, because um, what McConnell wants to do about retrospective impeachment obviously has quite significant implications for where the Biden's priorities are going to be and whether, indeed, there might not be a conflict whereby actually McConnell is keener on retrospective impeachment than Biden is. Though I'm sure that Biden is well aware of the dangers of allowing Trump to to run for office again. I mean, I think the thing that we do know about where the priority, one pri- big priority for the Biden presidency is going to be is climate. And I think that that is, in terms of the domestic politics and holding together the Democratic coalition as it now is, obviously politically useful for him. And it's a way of talking about economic recovery. And you can already see in one of the decisions that seems to have been made, which is to cancel the Keystone Pipeline again, that he does want to, over at least some issues, take on American oil and gas interests. I think the difficulty there is, though, I think, as I've said before, is is it gets pretty quickly into the China question and into foreign policy questions and how Biden is going to, to deal with that, because he does want at least some kind of, it looks like some kind of partial reset on China. He certainly seems to want a partial reset on Iran and that these are going to have consequences that reverberate beyond just the China issue and the Iran issue. So one big question I think for the the Biden administration is is how much geopolitics and foreign policy is going to be the immediate agenda and whilst it might seem that climate is a way of like you know moving between foreign policy and domestic um, policy I think that there are pitfalls there or there are potential traps there for him not least the possibility that you end up like saying okay we need a more greater accommodation with China for climate reasons and that that opens up the question of well do we then want to have China to be dominant in renewable energy manufacturing so these are pretty tricky questions. Gary one way in which the 
subject we were talking about up front and what we're talking about now connects is, and this is a point Helen made when we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, the window is relatively narrow if normal patterns hold, that is, you would expect, because the margins are so fine in Congress, you would expect the incumbent party to lose seats in the midterms of a first-term presidency. And so there were, there's a reasonable chance that Biden has got to get quite a lot done in the first two years, unless the calculation is the Republican Party is going to split. And so quite a lot hangs on that calculation, just the time frame of what gets done, whether you really think the window is two or four. And if your plan were adopted, which is for six months at least, just to focus on the pandemic stupid, the window gets even narrower. And there are all these other things that maybe need attention. The role of the big digital technology companies in American and indeed global life, the question of the reform of the system itself, the various things that need to be done to make American democracy more robust, more dynamic. There's a huge agenda. If the window is 18 months, that's not a lot of time. No, it's not. And I think if if you're Biden, you have to assume that the window is 18 months or two years. He can't go into his presidency thinking that he's got four years to work with. There is the example of Roosevelt and the New Deal where so much legislation was passed. There was such a blizzard in the first hundred days and there was so much excitement generated that the 1934 off-year elections swung heavily in the Democratic parties in Roosevelt's favor. But uh, even though Biden would like to duplicate the early success of the New Deal, I hope they're not counting on a big majority in the 2022 elections for the Democratic Party. I think uh, he is moving on multiple fronts. And so it's not to suggest he he focus on only one thing, but it's a question of what you push forward and what you highlight. And I think it's very important to, to demonstrate the competence of the federal government, that it is capable of doing good and powerful things in American society, because that may be the biggest casualty, one of the biggest casualties of the Trump administration. And of course, the ineffectuality of, of the federal government did not start with Trump. It's been part of the Republican playbook and it's been part of McConnell's playbook for a very long period of time. So I think it's uh, to change the conversation, to change the narrative. uh, Biden has to be able to convince a lot of people, not just Democrats, but people on the other side, that the government can do good things and and can have successes. And if if he achieves some credibility in that area, it's got to open up other opportunities for him. And it also moves him away from focusing on changing hearts and instead focus on changing behavior. If a lot of Americans feel that the federal government is doing something positive, something good, that will have a much bigger effect on their inclination for voting in 2022 than to than a rhetoric of unity and empathy. And we must answer to the better angels of our nature. I think that kind of rhetoric and talk um, doesn't work. If he were to be successful uh, with this early campaign, then I think the Green New Deal becomes a possibility. I think re- reform of the of the tech industry is is on the agenda. Uh, there is going to be a tremendous amount of discussion, and I think reform efforts in that direction. So let all these things go forward. But in terms of how he frames what he's doing, highlight something that is that can bring him some people from the other side and build a bigger base for 2022. Do you think competence matters more than coherence? I mean, given that you can try and sell yourself to the public as a competent party, but on the whole, what people tend to look for is a coherent narrative. Yes, I actually do think that competence is more important than 
coherence right now. And um, Biden has not been big on a coherent policy. That's one reason why Trump has not been able to nail him down very effectively in critiques. He's been a moving target. I think we can't uh, underestimate the significance of the federal government's failure and paralysis. It's part of what made possible Trump's election in 2016. His contempt for, for governing, I mean, my goodness, the man has done nothing as president between November and now except challenge the results of the election and come up with his list of people to, to pardon. There are now more Americans dead from the coronavirus than uh, in the Second World War. It's, this, it's, it's, it's a staggering figure and statistic. And I do feel if Biden can show the power and capability of the federal government under his leadership, that will open up other opportunities for him rather than to engage in highly polarizing issues. Now, he's going to have to satisfy parts of his constituency. It's important to recognize that in important ways, Blacks uh, delivered the nomination to Biden. If we remember back to our March discussion right after the Super Tuesday in March and the significance of Clyburn in South Carolina, He's going to have to deliver in a major way to the black constituency, and he's going to have to deliver to Georgia and Stacey Abrams, the person who orchestrated the big win of senators in Georgia. So there are debts to be paid off, and the Democratic Party is what it has always been, a collection of multitudes who spend as much time arguing with each other as, as agreeing. He's going to have to manage that. But I actually think the issue of competence in government and su demonstrated success and the opportunity for a big success within six months, I do think that can make a big difference. Can I just add one thing on, I think where I think he won't be doing is, is anything that's um, about regulating big tech. I mean, I think the fallout of what's happened in the last few weeks is, is that the anti-big tech faction in American politics is going to be the Trumpists without question. And the, the the big tech and the Democrats are more aligned than, in some sense, than perhaps they've ever been. And do you think, do you agree with Gary that competence trumps coherence? Because I have to say, I don't. I mean, I have my doubts. I think competence only gets you so far. I think in democratic politics, you need a you need a a narrative that people can identify with. I think the problem is, regardless of what was true about the past in relation to the competence versus coherence or competence versus narrative question, is that. It's very difficult for any government anywhere in the world right now to be competent. And I don't just mean that in relation to the pandemic, but all the difficulties and a whole range of spheres are in play in the way in which they interact with each other mean that governments are going to look like they're presiding over a mess quite a lot of the time. So I think that in that sense, I think we've left the politics of competence behind us, at least in the way in which we understood that as something that was what, say, a Democrat like Bill Clinton or what New Labour aspired to, that if you won there, that that's how you kept power. I think we've left that world behind. Well, I think it's not, it's, it's not competence completely shorn of, of coherence. And I think Helen is right to point to the global challenge to competence on the part of governments. But I also think that Democratic governments are going to have to find a way back to competence if they're going to persuade people to stay with democratic practice. Because if these national legislators continue to prove themselves to be incompetent, then that's going to increase authoritarian tendencies in the world. And the authoritarian tendencies are, in effect, partly a response to the failure of national governments to 
to solve problems. In America, to demonstrate the capability and success of government is itself an ideological statement and a principle and begins to weave a narrative. It was central to the New Deal and it brought the Democratic Party a great deal of success. Uh, So it's not just competence, but it's competence attached to a vision that a powerful central state is necessary to manage the economy and other things for the sake of individual welfare. That principle desperately needs to be reestablished in American life. And if it's not, I think the crisis of democracy will continue to deepen. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We definitely need to come back to this question, not least in relation to the pandemic. I mean, even in the UK, the last 24 hours have just shown how precarious the politics of the vaccine is and how quickly questions of competence can come back to the fore, indeed, of incompetence. So we'll see. Let's let's review this. I want to ask you two more quick questions before we come back after Joe Biden has spoken. So, Gary, you said that um, Trump hasn't done anything except wine and then give us his list of pardons. But no, he has done something else. He's given us his list of people that he wants to have statues of in the garden, the National Garden of American Heroes. And it's um, it's a great gift to us all. I think it's a list that we could, I would happily have spent the whole podcast going through the list and talking about who should be on it, who shouldn't be on it. So here's a question about, not about competence, but about coherence. We'll tweet the link to the list for people who haven't seen it. It's a weird list. It's got Hannah Arendt on it. It's got Woody Guthrie on it, not obviously Trumpy figures. Is there, is there any coherence to this list? Can you, can you look at this list of names and see... Um, picture of America? Uh, no, except, yes, <laughs> you, you, you see um, America in its multitudes, and you see America in its incoherence, and you see the wonderful part of its incoherence. It's actually very multicultural. I would even say it has a tinge of political correctness to it. It's not, uh, it's not super woke, is it? It's not super woke, but for- it's got John Trump, Wayne on it. For Trump, it's, I would say, disconcertingly woke. Way too many <laughs> indigenous- Americans, way too many African-American freedom fighters. There are, of course, as you might expect with the Trump list, lots of sports stars and entertainers and Walt Disney. I have not been able to spot any Confederate leaders during the Civil War. Maybe I, I missed a couple, maybe one or two are snuck in there, but they certainly don't headline the list. And that is significant since this was meant to be a replacement for the Confederate statues that were being torn down. And America has made some progress if in Trump's list, there is no effort in this list to put those statues back up. I noticed only one economist, Milton Friedman. There's a political statement there. I noticed only one Democratic jurist, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I think that's a big thank you to Ruth Bader Ginsburg for passing away when she did and giving Trump a third nomination. There's no Brandeis. There's no Warren. Uh, I found the selection of presidents interesting. There's 
Truman and JFK, but no Woodrow Wilson or Lyndon Johnson. But one omission is really un- unforgivable, and Alan and I are going to have to talk about this. Um, there is no Bruce Springsteen on this list, and I think there simply cannot be a Garden of Heroes for America today without Bruce Springsteen being on it. So for that reason alone, I reject the list as inappropriate to describe the America of our time in the 21st century. Helen, what did you make of it? I agree with Gary that in one sense there was a the wonderful multiplicity of America was in the list, and I kept looking at it and thinking, okay, wow, kind of. I think the two things that that most struck me, both partly because the first appeals to something in my imagination was Johnny Appleseed's presence on the list, you know, going back to some sort of story about the man kind of like crossing crossing America and planting apple nurseries. But also I was struck by Woody Guthrie, and that was partly because, as I'd been telling Gary when we were exchanging emails in the last few weeks, that I've been actually listening to quite a lot of Woody Guthrie over the last month or so. Um, But also because Woody Guthrie wrote this song about Trump's father, about you know I can't remember the exact words because it wasn't it wasn't actually um, recorded it was found later essentially Trump's father was the landlord of Woody Guthrie and he wrote a song about the racist housing practices of of Trump's father so that was pretty striking for uh, Trump to put Guthrie on this list or for somebody to for Trump to put Guthrie on this list and Guthrie's on it and Bob Dylan isn't. So, I mean, genuinely, it would be odd for me to have um, this garden with this range of people. Bob Dylan, one of the most significant Americans of the 20th century. And, you know, there are other odds. So Steve Jobs is on it and Bill Gates is not on it. And there may be politics behind some of this. So one of the things I looked for to see was was Emily Dickinson on it, because I think Emily Dickinson is literally the opposite of Donald Trump. I like to think of Donald Trump thinking of Emily Dickinson as one of his heroes. I think it's quite a good list in its weird way, <laughs> partly because it's so odd. On Dylan, I think that Bob Dylan will be the first person to say that Woody Guthrie should be on before him. I'm not saying Woody Guthrie shouldn't, <laughs> but I think Bob Dylan should. Steven Spielberg should probably be on it. We could go on and on. Uh, maybe we'll come back to this. I also assume that these uh, statues are never quite going to be uh, put up. Gary, last question. So we'll talk in a bit about what um, Biden says in his inaugural address. Inaugural addresses have traditionally been important events in the life of the Republic going way back, and some of them absolutely pivotal events. For instance, Lincoln's second inaugural. Do they, can they, in the, the current world, the current age, have anything like the same cachet? Do you think there's anything, we'll see what he does say, but do you think there is anything that Biden could say today that really resonates? Uh, I expect Biden to give a good speech for him. I mean, he's not eloquent, but he he clearly reads poetry and um, cadence of language matters to him, even though in his own speech, one can't often hear it. Uh, yesterday, he quoted James Joyce uh, from memory in a, in a speech in Delaware about wanting to die in Dublin. I think he will strike the right notes uh, about unity He's got great empathy. He will address the loss of Americans over the last year to the pandemic. He will call Americans to their better angels. I, I, I expect all these things. But what can transcend the political divide in America now? They will be instantly commented on and, and discussed uh, by the different television networks with CNN leaning left and Fox leaning right. They will put completely different spins on it. I don't see how one speech can 
get Americans to come out of the self-enclosed media bubbles in which they live. Uh, so while I expect him to give a good speech, I also expect the impact of it to be less than it would be if we were not living in the media circumstances and the polarizing conditions that we're currently in. And thus, I do feel that deeds right now are much more important than words. And what Biden does over the next six months is going to matter a lot more than what he says today. He does have, I think, good people around him. He's He ran a good campaign. He's run a good transition. So I am guardedly hopeful that uh, he will do some of the right things to put America back on track. But goodness knows there's a long way to go. Helen, do you think there's anything he could say today that transcends the moment? I, I mean, in one sense, who knows? I mean, I, I think he can he can say things that transcend the moment for some Americans, but that gets to the crux of the difficulty, is, is that it will be heard very differently by different Americans. Um, I don't think it will be... I mean, there will be a big contrast with what his predecessor did at this moment in 2017, which was not to make any effort whatsoever to transcend um, the moment. But I, I think I agree with Gary that you know, that the American political crisis in some sense is, is now so deep that it's not something that anybody could do. It's also the beginning of what I think is the next phase of American politics. I don't think it'll happen today. I'm sure it won't. But Biden is or will be in a couple of hours president. And from this point on, every time he gets up to speak, there will be people looking for signs of, let's call it, wobbliness in his performance, either physical frailty or cognitive frailty. And some signs of that will appear. I mean, they have appeared in, in the past few years. They've been relatively rare. And, you know, he in lots of ways, he's in pretty good shape. But that kind of Biden watch aspect of politics starts today. And it starts with this speech. I'm sure he will, but let's hope he delivers it well. The people, the will of the people has been heard and the will of the people has been heeded. We've learned again that democracy is precious. Democracy is fragile. And at this hour, my friends, democracy has prevailed. We'll press forward with speed and urgency, for we have much to do in this winter of peril and significant possibilities. Much to repair, much to restore, much to heal, much to build, and much to gain. Few people in our nation's history have been more challenged or found a time more challenging or difficult than the time we're in now. Once-in-a-century virus that silently stalks the country has taken as many lives in one year as America lost in all of World War II. Millions of jobs have been lost. Hundreds of thousands of businesses closed. A cry for racial justice some 400 years in the making moves us. The dream of justice for all will be deferred no longer. A cry for survival comes from the planet itself, a cry that can't be any more desperate or any more clear. And now, a rise of political extremism, white supremacy, domestic terrorism that we must confront and we will defeat. 
So Gary, you and I have just watched uh, Joe Biden's inaugural address. It was pretty good. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I thought so. And especially if you think of the last inaugural speech, American Carnage, which was staggering in its inability to comprehend anything about American history and to refer to any of the ideals on which the country was founded. Biden understood what an inaugural in America is meant to be, and uh, it was quite moving. It was it was spare, a little austere. I think that's appropriate to the moment, but I think he hit most of the notes he needed to hit, and uh, he signaled very strongly that a new sheriff is in town and a leader who, who hopes to help Americans reach for the better angels of their nature, which is something Trump never wanted to do. So it, it gives hope for a, a new departure. I mean, I have to say Trump's inaugural for all its flaws. It was the most memorable I've ever seen. I can still remember it as though it were yesterday. I can quote some of it, but let's not quote it now. I thought Biden's, I mean, it had the quality that speechwriters always say they strive for in a speech, which is it sounded like him. I mean, whoever wrote it caught his cadences and so he was able to deliver it. And I think there were one or two, if not ad-libs, but sort of slight homily asides. It, it really captured something about him, I thought. Yes. Um, it was very Joe Biden. Yeah, exactly. That's a that's more succinct way of putting what I just uh, said. Calls for unity, enveloped in empathy. His moment of silence uh, for those who've perished in the pandemic uh, was very Joe uh, Biden. His comfort with tragedy and pain is very, very Joe Biden, and uh, I think he has he has made himself much stronger from his own personal tragedies, which have been immense, and he's able to communicate that to other people. It's in, there's an interesting comparison with Roosevelt here. Uh, Roosevelt became a stronger man after his tragic encounter with polio and the loss of his legs. Not everyone deals with tragedy in that way, but both men, I think, have been able to reach far more Americans as a result of their pain and processing what it meant than is the case with many other people. And I think he put that to good use today in his speech. So some seasoned Biden watchers have noted that this is the first speech they've ever heard him give where he said, I give you my word, but he didn't add as a Biden. So he toned it down a bit. Um, so I'm going to say two things that gave me pause about it, and you can tell me I'm wrong. So the, the first was, there was a line in the middle where he said, and he said this on the campaign trail too, but he said it now, as president, that he was going to fight just as hard for the people who voted for the other guy as for the people who voted for him. And that's not true. I mean, I think that that is a hostage to fortune. I mean, he could say that he would fight for everyone or for the nation and that we all belong or whatever, but explicitly to say that the people who voted for Trump are going to get as much of his time and attention isn't true. Because as you said, when we discussed this just a few hours ago, he has some debts to pay. And I think it's dangerous to say things in a speech like that that are demonstrably not true. Yes, uh, although we it's a small transgression in the, the annals of political speech. But this, this also is something we talked about earlier, too. I think certain policies that he devises, he can work as hard for the other side as he does for his own side. And that's, that's where the all-out war on the, on the pandemic, I think, becomes really crucial to his ability to demonstrate that he can, in fact, deliver for all Americans, whereas the campaign for racial justice will not do that. And, of course, you saw today on the, the display on the Capitol in terms of who was there. 
this was multicultural America. This was the multicultural tribe, so radically different from the Trump tribe. And so the the difference of the two Americas came into stark relief today. And there's no way that a campaign for racial justice can't, in some in very important ways, be contentious. And I think Biden's challenge is to be able to say, we need to do this. Uh, not all my policies will benefit all Americans equally, but there are some things that we really can do together. And he's, I think for him to be successful, he's got to figure out at least one or two ways in which he can demonstrate that that is in fact the case indeed, and not just in rhetoric. So my other sort of caveat is that, so Trump's speech was the American carnage speech. That's how it's remembered. And he painted a dystopian picture of the nation. So did Biden. I thought it was too bleak. I actually thought it was genuinely too bleak. There were moments where I was watching, I wanted to say, it's not that bad, Joe. You know, this is indeed a difficult time for the country. I don't think it's as great a challenge as has been faced in the past. America is still a remarkably peaceful and prosperous nation. Most human beings in the history of human beings would be delighted to be born and live now in America. And he didn't really say anything beyond unity and strength of purpose and heart about the resources that America has to deal with these challenges. Unless I missed it, he didn't even mention the vaccine, did he, in relation to the pandemic? I mean, he said the worst months maybe ahead, they may be. But also, there wasn't, I thought, much about all of the things that America has going for it beyond its history and its heart. I actually thought it was a dystopian speech. Mm, interesting. It it was grim. It was really grim. It was bits of it were grimmer than Trump's, weirdly. Well... <laughs> I'll, you're gonna you're gonna make me go back and listen to Trump's speech tonight, and I'll and then I'll do I'll do a comparison of the two for you. I I think the speech was written too much in the shadow of the riot. You mm. you felt that every step of the way, you felt the vulnerability of Biden and the Democrats and Congress in that speech, and there was a physical demonstration of that vulnerability because it was just the political elite gathered on that stage. There was no one else there. There were no people there. This is the people's house. That in order to preserve American democracy and ensure this transition, they had to bar all people from the house. And I think the the calamity and the near murderous nature of that day and the shock that it generated in Washington and beyond, I think that was in every cadence of Biden's today. It was even in how he spoke, because he's usually more buoyant than he was today. And I think he would have been better served if he had been able to step outside that, as you're suggesting, if only for a moment to say, let's look for a moment at all the resources America has, and let's talk for a moment how we're going to deploy them. He he had nothing to say about what he was going to do over the next few months. And I'm relieved it wasn't a Clinton-esque performance where he would go on for an hour and a half about telling us everything he was going to do in the next 10 years. But he could have said more. He could have given a signal about what we're going to do about the vaccine and how we're going to bring health back to America. And he could have also referred to something he's already accomplished. Everyone up there was wearing a mask. There's been no other event in Washington where masks have crossed the partisan divide. So there are things he could have done. And I think his not doing them reflects the shock of January 6th and how that shock ramifies through his administration, through America, through the Trump supporters is got to have a lot to do with the shape of the next six months. 
One last very quick thought. So I did notice that, I mean, it was hard to judge applause lines because there was no one there really to applaud. But among the elite on the stage, the things that did seem to trigger sort of spontaneous acclamation were his attacks on the lies and his defense of the truth. And of course, that can just be read as a straightforward attack on Trump. But I think you could also read it as slightly to what we spoke about earlier, signaling an appetite for taking on the platforms, one might even say the publishers of these lies. There was, there was to me, a noticeable sort of coming together among that elite on the question of truth. And I was, I was struck by it. I was slightly surprised by it. It was the bit that cut through in a way. And he came back to it two or three or four different occasions. So yeah. it, it, it was not just iterated. It was, it was reiterated. I think there's going to be a reckoning with the high-tech companies in the, in the Biden administration. And it's going to happen not just because of the perception of fake news and lies now, but because it's been building for several years now. It's been Elizabeth, one of Elizabeth Warren's main campaigns. It's the centerpiece of Josh Hawley's book that got canceled by Simon and Schuster. It has support on both sides of the aisle. And I think there's a recognition that now that part of the fragility of democracy lies in the fact that private, very, very powerful corporations have too much control over speech and political discussion. And if democracy in America is to survive, and Biden himself admitted it's very fragile, this issue is going to have to be taken on. He also made very clear a number of times that domestic terrorism is going to be punished. And I think that's a very important message to communicate. And we talked earlier today about what he was going to focus on. And he slipped in what I take to be his his five major areas of concentration. One is to restore democracy. And I think doing something to get public regulation of high tech is part of that. The second is to punish domestic terrorists. The third is total war on the virus. The fourth is racial justice. And the fifth uh, is climate action. And then he said, we will be bold. We will do all this at once. Uh, So he's obviously not taking our advice from earlier today. He's got to do all this at once. It's a very bold plan. Uh, It resonates a bit with what Roosevelt tried to do in the early New Deal. It bears watching how he strategizes to do all this at once, but at the same time to put through measures that can succeed and begin to have an effect on American politics and society. That's quite a list. um, And there is going to be plenty for us to talk about over the weeks, months, and maybe years ahead. Next week, we're going to be looking at what's been going on in Germany. We may, may know who's going to succeed Angela Merkel and the tottering state of the Italian government too. And just a reminder that the new series of History Ideas starts on February the 2nd. And there is an opportunity for people who would like to, to get all of the books that I'll be talking about from writers like Bentham and Nietzsche and Simone de Beauvoir and many, many others, along with biographies, reading guides, an anthology of LRB writing and much else. Just go to lrb.me slash ideas plus and you can find out how to do it. lrb.me slash ideas plus. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics.
So let us leave behind a country better than the one we were left with every breath from my bronze pounded chest. We will raise this wounded world into a wondrous one. We will rise from the gold-limbed hills of the west. We will rise from the windswept northeast where our forefathers first realized revolution. We will rise from the lake-rimmed cities of the Midwestern states. We will rise from the sun-baked south. We will rebuild reconcile and recover in every known nook of our nation in every corner called our country our people diverse and beautiful will emerge battered and beautiful when day comes we step out of the shade aflame and unafraid the new dawn blooms as we free it for there is always light if only we're brave enough to see it if only we're brave enough to be it Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.